I'm Kate Bowler, and this is Everything Happens. So, you know, sometimes life is just motoring along, and then out of nowhere, the wheels fall off, and suddenly life as you know it is veering off in an insane direction. This podcast is about those times. It's about the times when suddenly life isn't taking you anywhere you hoped to go, and what we learn when we're stuck. Ever since my own diagnosis with stage 4 cancer, I've learned a lot about dealing with life's heartbreaking turns. And I'm still learning, partly by having conversations with fellow travelers. One of those travelers is here with me today. Her name is Lucy Kalanithi. You may have heard of Lucy. She's the wife of the late neurosurgeon Paul Kalanithi, who wrote the best-selling, beautiful book, When Breath Becomes Air. Paul died of cancer at 37 before he could finish the book, and Lucy carried this incredible manuscript to publication. So Lucy knows what it's like to have this sudden shift off of the life she hoped for. And I wanted to talk to her about what she learned in the process, especially what she learned about love. It is so good to see you here today. Thanks for having me. So your life with Paul is an amazing love story. What made you fall in love with him in the first place? So Paul and I met in our first year of medical school, and he fell in love with me at first sight. What? That's what he said. That's awesome. And then um, I knew he was the smart, intellectual guy in our med school class, but I realized about three weeks into school that he had a fake mustache on his medical student ID. Stop it. Isn't it great? And he'd been a comedy writer in college, and I had no idea how funny he was, and pretty irreverent and just thoughtful and alive. And um, so I fell in love with him uh, quickly. (laughs) I I love the stupid things. Like, I realized I loved Tobin when I saw that he was wearing, like, a tank top that was way too loose at the front. And every now and then he would sort of look down and notice and then and then forget he was wearing it. Like, I, it's funny how you just fall in love with, like, the mm-hmm. stupid little things. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the things that you came to love about him once he was sick? So Paul, when he was sick, really retained this sort of sparkly, wry sense of humor. And I think one of the things I loved the most was thinking back on a number of conversations we had and just how morally clear he was Mm. and how thoughtful he was about living despite being right up against suffering and dying. And there was a conversation we had that was really important in crystallizing when we were talking about whether to try to have a child Mm. despite his illness or Mm. in the setting of his illness. And I was really worried about his experience and what it would mean to you know, have a child who likely wouldn't remember him and have to cope with that joy knowing he was leaving it behind. And so I asked him really directly and said, you know, I'm worried about you and I'm worried that having to say goodbye to a child will make dying more painful. Mm -hmm. And he looked right at me and said, wouldn't it be great if it did? And that idea of like really willingly taking on Um, this really profound experience that for everybody, sick or not, is full of joy and full of uncertainty and maybe full of pain, you know, um, was just so beautiful. And it was like he really had this sense of what it means to be alive. And he kept that. And then the other thing was he was so nice to me. He was so, 
Yeah. I mean, like even the thing of saying, I want you to remarry, it's just like, that is the most crushing, heartbreaking thing to say to your spouse. But it's so thoughtful. It's like really saying, I'm willing to talk about this out loud. I'm willing to acknowledge what's going on. I really care about what's happening to you. It's just so profound and beautiful and um, generous. And it's like, I love you beyond who you are with me. Oh, gosh. I mean, like, that's an intense love. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the, because, mm-hmm. you know, there's always those stupid songs like, I, you know, I like me better when I'm with you. And I'm like, well, good for you. I'm super happy for you. Not sure that's love. <laughs> like, because then he yes. just, like, he loves you beyond himself as, like, yeah. a whole and complete person. Yeah. Like even when he comes to the end of himself. Oh, like, it's like totally bring tears to my eyes. Oh, yes. but like that's like, oh, that's a really big love. Yeah. Because that's what I think of when I think of you. I think of really costly love. Yeah. There's this really amazing, raw, genius writer named Emily Rapp Black who actually helped me write the epilogue to Paul's book. Mm. And um, she lost her son to Tay-Sachs. And she said this beautiful thing at one point. She said, these are the wages of mortal love. And it's that, right? It's like the... Like, this is what it will cost you to love this dearly. Right, right. But like, your decision to have a kid, can you tell me a little bit more about the calculus behind deciding to like, love each other and then love someone else in the midst of loss? Yeah, yeah. So Paul and I had thought we would have a child at that moment in our lives anyway, which was he was finishing his neurosurgery residency and I was working as an internist and it was sort of like, oh, when he's done with his training, things are going to be easy. Then he can be a regular surgeon and not a resident and blah, blah. And then that was right when he got sick. And so it was when things were supposed to get easier and then they didn't. And we sort of looked at each other and thought like, maybe we should still think about doing that, but both of us worried we were crazy. And so we talked to our families and they were really supportive. Mm. And Gwyneth Paltrow said this, <laughs> Say thing, more. Said, said this thing in an interview one time about how when you decide to have a child, it's it's like you're not just having a baby and like, let's hold the cute baby. It's like you're adding another chair to your family's table. Mm-hmm. And that mm. I love. And that's what it felt like, right? It's sort of like we're a family and then someone else could be in this family too. And that's a thing we yeah. wanted to do before. And that's a thing we want to do now. And I think if you are planning to have a child, you're sort of like, is this meaningful to me? And do I think I can provide this child with a good life? And I think we could answer yes still. And mm-hmm. our family was a huge part of that. I, I like the seat at the table. Because when I think about Tobin, it was like when we got married, it was practicing saying like, there's something here that makes more things possible. And then when we had Zach, it was like, and now we're we're making more things possible. And then now not being able to have another kid, mm-hmm. I've been practicing almost saying like, this love takes up all kinds of space. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. just because some things fall away, mm-hmm. like it doesn't make it incomplete. Like love just takes up a lot of space. Yeah. And I'm really grateful for that. Yeah. And I think there's something there about making decisions, right? Like in the recent interview that you did in Time Magazine that's so beautiful. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> you said something in it about um, there's something beautiful about you get sick and you double down on the life you have. Like you're not wishing for something else. And I think there's all kinds of decisions like that. Like even choosing a career and sticking with it, mm-hmm. it's to the exclusion of all other careers, yeah. you know. And I think it is important to commit to your thing. It's the way, same way if you're 
in a relationship with somebody, it's so romantic to just wake up every single morning and being like, I'm here again, and I'm here again, and I'm here today, and be here tomorrow. It's like that is so romantic. You it know? is. And so I think that's kind of what you're doing too with your with your one kid. Also, I like to tell him, um, which I just took from a movie, the triangle is the strongest shape in nature because <laughs> there's three of us. Ugh. <laughs> I, which I, I hope is true. It could be the circle. Don't look it's, it up. Let's um, not yeah, let's, Don't let's, Google it. Don't ruin it. Um, I wanted to ask you about what it was like after Paul died to bring the manuscript to fruition, because I'm sure that cost you something too, to grieve publicly, to maybe grieve for this long uh, in a way, because like writing a book takes forever. And then you have to talk about the book after creating the book was so private and lovely and intimate. It's like this interior world, like a diary. And then all of a sudden you take it to the circus. <laughs> so what was it like being like the legacy bearer of that kind of love? It was super helpful. Really? I think I will. Yeah, I think some of it was our personality types. Like Paul was introverted and wry uh-huh. and loved writing. And I'm extroverted and love talking. Like I was made to do a book tour. <laughs> and I will never write a book. So like, <laughs> thank you. Um, but it was super helpful to, to on the book tour, talk about Paul and talk about grief because I think that stuff can be so shrouded and isolating and yeah. people are scared to ask you about the thing and are they going to make you cry? So yeah. just to have a vehicle for immediately connecting. Oh, wow. Very helpful. Yeah. And then right after Paul died, the only thing I wanted to do was read the manuscript and work on the manuscript and help choose the cover for the book and just be doing things in service of Paul because especially when he was sick we were so fused you know and it's like um like there was this moment where during Paul's burial the pastor and Paul's casket were like going down this hill uh-huh. and I like ran ahead to like walk next to it I was just like he doesn't have to go by himself you know like I'm gonna go and so I just had this really intense desire to like keep being with him or keep um taking care of him too but it wasn't just taking care of him it was like a a partnership you know and so to keep doing the book was part of that yeah you know because I was sort of insane after Paul died. Like I was sort of sleepless and I had really severe tingling in my hands and I was just like functioning, but not (laughs) at the same time. And so, but I felt like myself when I was working on the book and then Mm -hmm. it took me a while to figure Mm -hmm. out how to be in the world otherwise. And the book was like this sort of lifeline and I loved it. It was good. That's and then now all these weird things have happened as a result where it's like, I'm meeting you, I'm friends with you. Like, I never would be friends with you. And so just so many, it's been this, like, big gift to me. And my career is really different as a physician. I talk about humanism in medicine and end-of-life care and these things that are soulful and personal. Yeah. But I have this platform to do it. It's been, I think Paul would be really excited to see how it turned out, obviously. Yeah. Well, I, I was so glad you used the word crystallized before. Like, he has such a crystallized writing I mean it's the way you know diamonds are made (laughs) you can like see all the pressure that created that much beauty and clarity about life and its meaning and the significance of time and like it just oozes with love like so much love for you and one of the things that helped me process was um 
I've just always been afraid that like I'm going to be the thing that happens to everyone. And it was helpful to see um, you seem grateful. Yeah. For how much it cost you. Oh, yeah. Like I would I would do it again in a second. Yeah. Yeah. I get a lot of letters from people where their their person left in the middle of it. I mean, you you like stayed, you doubled down. <laughs> like do you remember how you did that math in your mind about like loving someone even though you could tell at the front end like this is going to hurt? So Paul and I got his cancer diagnosis by looking at his CT scan ourselves because he was getting the medical care and workup at the hospital where we worked. And so he just logged in to the computer. And then you're like scrolling up and down through the CT images. And it was wow. so obvious there were tumors in his lungs and his spine was like partially deformed by tumors. And it was like totally wordless looking at this screen. And I just remember, I think I literally thought, I was like, I will hold him as he dies or I will be there when he dies which you know you know like if you marry somebody it's like hopefully that's the case right you literally say it in your wedding vows but I think the more present that idea gets it's like it is like a reaffirmation of what you're doing I was like this turns out this is the thing yeah like yeah this is the event of my life yeah like this is the thing we're gonna do And the crazy part was Paul and I hadn't been communicating that well right before that. Like he was working 90 hours a week and we were both like working hard and trying to figure out what we were going to be doing after residency. And it was like this really intense time. And I think the cancer diagnosis was like a nutcracker Mm. and it got us back into the soft, nourishing meat of our marriage. Mm. And I don't think it's like as simple a narrative as like, and then we got cancer and everything was great and it yeah, saved dinner. our marriage. But yeah. it's like, yeah. it was cementing. And I think, you know, I think this kind of stuff, like you were alluding to with the, these people who left, is like, it can drive you apart or it can bring you closer together. And I think, or or whatever, you know? And I think yeah. some of that does have to do with communicating and then being willing to be a witness. Yeah. Yeah. I think if... If I asked Tobin, like, he would cite the day of my diagnosis as the day he knew I really loved him. <gasps> like I, Why? Because he said, I just looked at him with so much love. Uh, and, like, because everything was falling apart. Like, it was just falling apart so fast. I don't know. It was oddly galvanizing. <laughs> sure. You know? I get it. Right. Just to know, like, I think just what you're saying, like, oh, this is the thing. Like, this is the thing we do together. And this is who we are in it. Right. And sometimes it's grouchy. I mean, sometimes <laughs> right. it's super grouchy. Right. But it is like your house is on fire. And what do you reach for? You know, when it's like, yeah, obviously you reach for Tobin, but he can see it. My dad said you reach for your dissertation, but that was before. <laughs> that was when it was all paper copies. He said there used to be fire drills in the student hall. And all the, all the women, he said, would run out holding their babies and all the men would run out holding their dissertations. <laughs> Which sounds true. It was, um, I think part of what might surprise people was that Paul immediately gave you permission to remarry. And that makes sense to me <laughs> as like a, like a loving... Um, beyond yourself, but like, how did you feel about it at the time? Oh, I thought it was so, I mean, I guess a mix of things. It was really, it felt really stark 
to say that um, because it's just so intense to hear that from your husband. Yeah. It's like the last thing you want to do is remarry somebody else. Um, but it also was this real acknowledgement of what was going on and being willing to talk about it and then really caring about me and what happened to me. And I sort of was hit with the force of all that stuff. I was like, gosh, what a insanely generous thing to say. Mm. And then it also was sort of radically permissive too. It was Mm. like, okay, like whatever is happening with me in the future, I don't have to wonder or feel guilty or weird. It was like such an acknowledgement of me as a person. And then Paul did it in one other way too, which is um, thinking about, so we were making advanced directives we're talking about medical care and yeah. it's like okay the big I feel like one of the big moral questions of our time in American modern medicine is like how do we use the technology we have wisely and judiciously and you know CPR or life support machines it's like if you're really really sick they don't necessarily help you and they might make you feel worse or um, suffer more um, and I think Paul and I were worried about that. There's sort of like the dominant battle narrative in medicine. um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just keep fighting. Yeah, and it's like, how do you know when it's time to stop or shift? And and I think he could tell that I was stressed out about it. Mm. And I remember him saying, you know, just so you know, if, if I'm like not able to communicate or I end up, in some situation medically that you feel like didn't fit me or there's family conflict or there's just something he's like, don't worry about it. He's like, it's okay. Mm. You know, like mm. absolving me of like, like feeling oh. responsible. And then he said, and also the last day of your life is not the sum of your life. The sum of your life is the sum of your life. Oh. And so he's like, just don't worry about my last day. It's okay. And he said it uh, well ahead of, anything he just was like thinking about what what I was gonna worry about or something you know and it's like he he was so generous um in fact he gave you permission to fall in love again so I um have fallen in love with somebody and it's so nice and I'm like utterly convinced that if Paul were to meet John, he would like him and he would also punch him in the face. <laughs> First, there'd be a homicide. Yes. And then there'd be a resurrection. And then there'd be like <laughs> shaking his hand and being like, well done. Well done. Good job. Yeah. Welcome. Good choice. <laughs> um, John recently said, I feel like I'm starring in a romantic comedy that I like would not buy a ticket for because <laughs> it's too <laughs> implausible. That's awesome. Um, so now, um, having fallen in love, and I have this other family in our lives now, um, which is John and his two children, Freddie and Benny. John's a widower, and his late wife was a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I initially fell in love with her and didn't really know anything about him, but I loved her writing, and yeah. um, her name was Nina Riggs. And she died of breast cancer and wrote a memoir called The Bright Hour. Um, and a really beautiful essay in the New York Times uh, called When a Couch is More Than a Couch. And I briefly communicated with her when she was sick, and then I wrote a blurb for the cover of her book. Love it. Which I've only done three times total, including for you. (laughs) And she also was able to crystallize some of those really poignant, painful, beautiful things um the way that I feel like you can and the way that Mm. I felt like Paul could and 
I hemmed and hawed about writing to her when I knew she was in hospice. Sure. And her literary agent had told me, and this mutual friend we happened to have had told me. And I was like, oh, can I really write to her? What am I going to say? And I just wrote this tiny little short email about how I was her fan forever. And um, I was like, she can ignore it if she wants. Uh. <laughs> and, you know, even having been through a thing, it's like, I oh, had to yeah. Google how to write a condolence <laughs> card. It's not like you don't get less awkward. Um, so I wrote to her, and then her husband wrote back and said, you know, Nina's too sick to manage her email, but she wants to know whether I can contact you for support, and I'm also going to have to do a book tour in the wake yeah. of Nina dying. And so um, I was like, yeah, sure, contact me. And Nina was sort of like the character reference for John. Yeah. And yeah. then I started writing to John, and we wrote for like two months straight, really frequently about grief and about everything, especially about putting your life together after somebody dies and how do you figure out how to do, how do you figure out how to go on without somebody and also with them at the same time um, because of missing them and loving them forever. And, um, and then we fell in love as we were talking about that stuff, which seemed insane. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> like, I was like, don't fall in love with me. Don't put your thing on me. I like be careful. And both of us are going to get hurt and you're insane. But then he is just so charming and smart and um, astute and great. I'm just processing how many things you have in common. Mm-hmm. Like, But that's the thing that's actually the weirdest. It's uh-huh. like, then independently of that, I think we're a really good match. Like really? it's yeah. really weird. It's sort of like a weird coincidence. Uh-huh. And I'm really different from Nina, apparently. And he's really different from Paul. And Yeah. But yeah. I, it's funny. It's so weird. And it's like I think all four of us, I think, share some of the same values. And I don't know. It's weird. It's like we're in a relationship and it's a foursome and two people are dead. It's really wild. It's really interesting. And it's also, I feel super lucky that I could get to know Nina through the book and he could get to know Paul. Yes, it's right. just bizarre. Yeah. It's, and then, you know, there's all this other new stuff to navigate. Like, I have my daughter and he has two sons. And, yes. Um, but you're connected but by love. Like, you're totally. all connected by different kinds of love. And, like, totally. love that reaches into the past, love that reaches into the future. It's wild. Like, I think maybe the bit about the kids is... For me, at least, it's, like, the most creative, hopeful place I find for, like, making space for love in my life. Like, those kids also just have, like, beautiful, important needs and insane narcissism, right? Because every kid is, like, totally narcissistic. I When when John and Freddie and Benny came to visit us at our house, Paula had an Xbox One. And he played it a lot when he was sick. He played, like, FIFA and this other weird fantasy <laughs> thing. And Freddie, who was 10 at the time... John's son was like, uh, could we play the Xbox? And also, like, is there any way we could have it? Because if Paul's not using it, maybe we could have it. And I was like, well, he's not using it because he died. So we could talk about that. And Freddie's like, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to say it like that. But it's like what you just said. It's like, I'm 10 and I'm really sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry your person died. And Yeah. And also I want this Xbox. (laughs) You described this moment in the backseat of a car. Can you remind me of what happened? Okay, so um, I had this moment kind of recently where we were spending time with their family, and in the backseat of the car were Katie, my daughter, and Freddie and Benny. And in the front seat, it was me and John. And Katie, apropos of nothing, that earlier that evening had said, (laughs) eat the poop. 
which is like so <laughs> rude if you're three. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's forbidden. Ultra rude. And so I kind of laid the smack down. And I was like, you are not allowed to be rude. And then she said it again in the car on the way home. And I was like, you are allowed to make noise in a tunnel. There's, we have a rule in our family. Where yeah. You need to be quiet and respectful in the car, not distract the driver, unless you're in a tunnel. And then you can make any noise you want only in the tunnel. <laughs> so I said, you can say it in the tunnel if you choose to. So we go through a tunnel like a little while later. And f- Katie and Benny are like, eat the poop, eat the poop in the tunnel. <laughs> It's now evolved to saying, drink the pee. <laughs> and, but I, I kind of lost it in the car because I thought it was really funny and charming. And John was like getting kind of mad. And then finally, John got overwhelmed and was like, eat the poop and yelled it really loud. And the children <laughs> lost it. And it just was this moment of like ridiculous levity. And I was like, this is not what we thought our lives would be like any of us sitting in this car together. But um, it was one of the most joyful moments of my whole life since Paul died, certainly. Um, and it was um, it was like the mix <laughs> of just unexpected and absurd and really joyful and like and just, like that's it. We're doing it. Like new things. It. Yep. <laughs> Drink the pee. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking with me today. You really are the best. I loved it. <laughs> I think my favorite thing about Lucy is that she's brave. Just brave in love. Wasn't that such an amazing conversation that Paul and Lucy had about having a baby? She said, if we have a baby, wouldn't it make dying harder? And he said, wouldn't it be great if it did? I'm in a really weird place right now because I have to make really unusual calculations about how I should live because of my unusual health situation. So I have a stage four cancer diagnosis and my treatments have been good, but it means that I am in this three month liturgy where every three months I go in and they put dye in my veins and they measure to see whether the tumors are growing. And if the tumors aren't growing, then they smile and they schedule another scan, which means that my life takes on this three month rhythm. I live for three months, and I take a deep breath, and then I hope to start all over again. And I will probably do that for the rest of my life. It means that I have to make very calculated decisions about how I spend my time. Like, what should I care about? What matters if everything hangs in the balance? And this conversation with Lucy gave me a new, beautiful way to think about how to make hard choices. Is it beautiful? Is it brave? If I were to love it, would it hurt like hell to leave it? Well then, good. Next time, we're going to talk to one of my favorite hilarious people about a life which embraces awkwardness. It's Alexandra Petri, and she's the author of A Field Guide to Awkward Silences. And she's the only person I know who has run an entire dog course as a human contestant. She's amazing. She will be funnier than anyone you know, so just accept that now. 
Everything Happens is produced by Duke University in association with North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. Support comes from Faith and Leadership, an online learning resource. This podcast is produced by Beverly Abel and Allison Jones. Sound engineering is by Dennis Foley with assistance from Ivan Panaruski. Special thanks to Amanda Height and the Be the Change Revolution team and Random House. And we'd love to hear from you. If you like what you're hearing, please post a review on iTunes. And while you're there, be sure to hit that subscribe button. You can find me on Facebook, always, Instagram, often, and Twitter, every day, at Kate Bowler. Let's chat. Until next time, this is Everything Happens with me, Kate Bowler. <laughs>